Welcome to California State of Mind, a new podcast from CalMatters and Cap Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera, a reporter for CalMatters. And I'm Nicole Nixon. I cover politics for Cap Radio in Sacramento, where I am now under a new regional stay-at-home order. (laughs) Welcome to my world, Nicole. I'm in Los Angeles, where we've been on the stay-at-home order for about a week. And we were on a county stay-at-home order for a couple weeks before that. Yeah, well, one of the things with these stay-at-home orders is there's such a patchwork right now. You know, we're under it. You're under it. But the Bay Area, a few of them voluntarily went under it. One of the counties, San Mateo, sat it out. And then within these regions, you also have cities that are kind of trying to skirt this rule by doing things like in Manhattan Beach. They designated some restaurant outdoor Uh, eating areas as public spaces so that people could kind of get around that ban on outdoor dining. So I think this time it's just like kind of all over the place, like a Wild West. Well, people are pushing back. I know I just had a story about this regarding playgrounds, which were closed in March. They reopened in October. Of course, people were very happy about that. And now they were going to be closed again under these regional stay-at-home orders. And parents just pushed back. And the state changed their mind about that. But now we'll see if counties actually go along with that reversal. So it's just going to depend. And a lot of people now are trying to figure out What are the rules in my area? How do we abide by them? Or why are they this way? Well, and outdoor restaurants are a really good example of that because they are closed and people are wondering if there's any strong evidence that links transmission of the virus to eating outside. And the state's top health official, Dr. Mark Galley, kind of admitted this week that they don't have a ton of that evidence that they're really including outdoor restaurants in this stay-at-home order to just get people to stay home, which is something that makes sense during a pandemic, but we haven't really heard a ton of that messaging lately. Well, Nicole, that's true. This shows that people are confused or they don't quite understand why things are happening. And now that we're, you know, months into this, people want to understand the science behind it. And those are the things that are raising questions. Absolutely. Well, let's turn to homelessness right now, which is still this huge issue, but it has been overshadowed by all of these new stay-at-home orders and how businesses are doing and all of this other stuff. That's right, Nicole. There are still thousands of people on the streets who are now facing cold weather, along with the risk of contracting coronavirus. And the state is trying to get people into housing, but they've been hitting some roadblocks. I invited CAP Radio's Chris Nichols to talk with us about what he's been seeing among the homeless there in Sacramento. And CalMatters' Matt Levin is going to help us understand what the state is doing to try to help them. Chris, we as reporters don't often follow up with people we've interviewed. But recently, a follow-up was sort of forced on you. You had talked with a homeless man who you found living on the streets in Sacramento just before Thanksgiving. What ended up happening? Well, Cap Radio photographer Andrew Nixon and I uh, interviewed a man named Greg Tarola for a story about warming centers. And this was the week before Thanksgiving. Temperatures were dropping into the mid-30s in Sacramento. And it was right before the, uh, the season's first big rainstorm. And now these warming centers, those are the bare bones facilities that some cities and counties in California open, but only when it gets really, really cold in Sacramento County, it has to reach 32 degrees, three nights in a row for them to open. And advocates for the homeless in the county, they've been asking government leaders to to ease up on this criteria. 
Um, when I spoke with Mr. Tarola, he was seated on a sidewalk about a block or so from a, a homeless service center in the city's river district. I'm homeless. So that, 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 I was just made homeless as of last week. Uh, I'm an epileptic. I've had the surgery in 2012 and uh, <laughs> at Stanford and I guess I grew into it. I don't know. I, 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 medication doesn't work. I'm a diabetic, epileptic, this, that. Can you describe what it's like to be out here without the warmth of a, of a home? What, what is that like? You're strictly on your own to pray for God that he comes through because you got nothing. At least I, at least this Italian had nothing. He was wearing jeans and a lightweight jacket. He had a couple of small tarps next to him and what looked like a leather jacket. And Tarola told me that he had no idea that these warming centers existed and that he had no options for shelter. And at that time, there were no warming centers open anywhere in the county. And then we, we found out tragically that just three days after we spoke with Mr. Tarola, he was found dead under a blanket, wet from the previous night's rain. We've received quite a few um, emails from old high school classmates and friends and family who heard about the death and then found our story and the photo of Mr. Tarola online and were really shocked and saddened. Um, I do want to add one last important note. Um, Mr. Tarola's cause of death, at least as of this recording, is still classified by the Sacramento County Coroner's Office as undetermined. So we can't say definitively what happened to him, but uh, advocates for the homeless believe that he froze to death. After this sad ending to your original story, you decided to follow up with some of those people who contacted you who had known him. Tell us who we're going to hear from now. Well, first we have uh, a little bit from his former girlfriend, uh, Debbie Beck, who knew him when he was growing up uh, in the 1970s back in Pacific Grove on the Monterey Peninsula. And finally, um, his ex-wife, uh, Natalie Lane, who knew him in the 1990s. She was married to Tarola for about five years. I actually was in a relationship with Greg for about three and a half years. Total jock, sports cars. I, I, seeing the picture of Greg in my mind right now is he was the neatest, cleanest, well taken care of, very proud of who he was. You wonder how he got to where he's at. Never did I experience any alcohol or drugs with Greg in the three to four years that I knew Greg. And he's a college graduate, so he uh, attended Pasadena City College, where he became a dental tech. And um, he uh, was diagnosed with epilepsy. And I actually was with him when he experienced the first grand mal seizure. I know that they tried to help him, but knowing Greg's um, ego and how proud he was as a person, I think it just consumed him. I really do. Whether the treatments worked for him or not, or whether there was a lot of other underlying emotional issues. He lost his mom when he was in high school. 
But again, to see him and hear how he passed shocked me. I was like, no, we, we need more. We need to have a story and Greg needs to be honored. Greg been given a shower and a warm place to sleep, I don't think he would have died. I think he died in the elements, and I'm still waiting to find out if that's true, but I think he died of hypothermia. But man, the first rainstorm comes through and he dies? I mean, it's just not right. I definitely think that there is an opportunity for just a little more human compassion. My dad was a cop and he was homeless, you know? He had kids, he was, he played the guitar. I mean, these people were real people before they're filthy and mentally unstable because they're living in the elements. You know, I challenge anybody, just sleep in your backyard when it's really cold outside, one night with one blanket, and you will appreciate how difficult it is. So I, I don't know what the answer is, it's very complex, it's very expensive but it just doesn't seem right that people die because of a rainstorm or they're starving and they starve to death. Debbie Beck and Natalie Lane. Greg passed away on the streets of Sacramento shortly before Thanksgiving. Chris Nichols, share with us a little bit about the policy debate that triggered this story, a debate over when to open warming shelters for unhoused Californians. Advocates for the the homeless have repeatedly called on the city and the county here in Sacramento to to make it easier to open these warming centers. And right now, the, the county offers guidance that says cities should only open warming centers after three consecutive nights of freezing temperatures. It literally has to be 32 degrees three nights in a row. But the different groups that work with people that are unhoused say that criteria is just too strict. And they've made these calls over and over. And there was what looks like a sign uh, recently that there could be some change. Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg called for these facilities to open in Sacramento. Um, Although at the same meeting, the city decided that it first needed to consult with the county before doing so. So there was no immediate opening. Um, Instead, they said those conversations are ongoing. Well, this is such an interesting and important story that just shows how complicated these issues can be for the people making decisions, but also just how tragic things can go for those who are most impacted and on the street. Thank you, Chris Nichols, reporter for CAP Radio, for joining us today. Thanks for the chance to talk about it, Elizabeth. So you may have heard about the governor's move to get unhoused people into hotels so they can social distance during the pandemic. In fact, one was planned to open less than two miles away from where Greg Tarola died. That would have provided a permanent room eventually, but the plan was abandoned. And here to give us the latest on the governor's hotel programs is my colleague at CalMatters, Matt Levin. He covers housing issues for us. Hey, Matt. Hey, Elizabeth. So I want to just jump in. You heard uh, Chris talking about what happened to Greg. Wasn't the state trying to get people like Greg into hotels to make sure they had a place to social distance during the pandemic? And so we didn't have outbreaks and homeless encampments or, you know, deaths like the one that happened to him. 
Yeah, and conceivably, Greg um, kind of fit the target demographic of who should have received a motel room because he had those pre-existing medical conditions that he described, um, especially diabetes. So uh, in April, Governor Newsom launched Project Room Key, um, which was this emergency program to basically put as many people experiencing homelessness as possible into motel rooms across the state. There were also some um, trailers that were provided by the state. Um, and the, the goal was uh, pretty simple. It was, we don't want a major outbreak of the coronavirus in a homeless shelter where it could spread like wildfire um, or in encampments, um, a la kind of what we saw with the hepatitis outbreak in San Diego among the homeless population there a, a few years ago. Um, so the, the state moved about as fast as it could with kind of county governments leading the way to lease as many hotel rooms as possible. Well, let's give an overview just of how many people we're talking about have been housed because of the pandemic. And then how many total homeless do we have in California? So at Project Room Key's peak, about 22,000 people stayed in a motel room, which is a pretty remarkable number. Now, a lot of those stays were temporary, and only about 14,000 people right now, as of when we're recording this, are still in motel rooms. Um, so those numbers are big. The, the problem is, is that there's more than 150,000 Californians at last count um, that don't have a stable place to call home. It's a, it's a large number of people to consider and to try to help in that way. California Governor Gavin Newsom saw the pandemic as an opportunity to tackle the state's homelessness problem in a more permanent way, right? Explain what he did and how was this a bigger opportunity beyond temporary shelters that we had prior to the pandemic? So arguably the one silver lining of the pandemic for Governor Gavin Newsom um, was Project Home Key. And this is the successor to Project Room Key. He's a fan of using the word key a lot. Um, that's, that's what I've learned in covering homelessness here. Um, but what, what this would do was look, the, the rationale was, hey, there's a bunch of motels here that are probably cheaper than they normally would be because people don't want to stay in them. Um, and we have a public health imperative to get as many people off the street as quickly as possible so we can avoid some of the regulations that often derail homeless housing or at least, at least make it very time-consuming to build from scratch. So voila, Project Home Key. So this was an $800 million program to buy as many properties as possible in six months. Did they actually use up all that money yet? Not yet. And, and the clock is ticking. They have to spend the money because it's actually money from the federal government. They have to spend it by the end of the year. Or they have to face the politically kind of horrifying reality of returning that to the outgoing Trump administration. Right, because the funding is going to go away at the end of the year. So what's the future of room key, home key? And have the folks who've been able to access those programs gotten a leg up or was this just temporary? So I think Project Room Key was a success to the extent that so far it has mitigated the type of coronavirus outbreak in a homeless shelter that a lot of public health authorities feared. We haven't seen the virus explode among the homeless population yet. And I say yet because a lot of the leases from these hotels are winding down right now. And it's arguably the worst time to be taking people out of hotels, right? The virus is surging across the state. Um, so the Newsom administration is doing as much 
as it can, arguably, to prevent um, all of these 14,000 remaining homeless people who are in hotels right now from going into shelters and going back on the street. They freed up about 60 million and more money uh, to offer to counties to keep these hotels online. Um, but it, in terms of the future of what those 14,000 individuals are actually going to see, it remains uncertain. And right, you mentioned COVID is surging right now across California. It's also winter, which impacted Greg, you know, that we yep. talked about early in the episode and, you know, so many other factors that people deal with on the street. Do you think this is going to lead to positive changes in the way California tackles homelessness in the future? So yes and no. Um, which is the easy reporter answer to duck any question. But I'll start with the yes part. The, the state has never added this much homeless housing. Assume all of these motel purchases go through. They've never done this in such a tight timeline. I mean, homelessness advocates have been begging for the two things that Project Home Key has actually delivered um, for decades. That's a big, big chunk of money. That's $800 million, right? And that's, let's make it easier to avoid some of these cities that don't like homeless housing within their borders. And, and HomeKey has done that. And that's a something I think Newsom can take some pride in. On the flip side, for your average California voter, 6,100 units, you're probably still not going to see a reduction in visible homelessness. When you go down a freeway underpass, you're still going to see tents, right? Um, you're still going to see people sleeping on the street. And that's a real political problem for Newsom, because even if his marquee program is successful, it's hard to demonstrate that to voters. Well, I've been talking to CalMatters housing reporter Matt Levin. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Elizabeth. So, Nicole, the tension around trying to house the homeless has always been there. But I wonder now, as the pandemic goes on and on, if it's just harder for Californians to pay attention when they're worried about their own rent, virtual schooling, not being able to see family, jobs. Some people worried about how they're going to get Christmas on the table and under the tree. For sure. And the other thing is that people aren't commuting into work as much. So maybe they're not seeing as many of the homeless encampments along the highway or under the freeway underpasses. Um, another thing that's interesting is... Matt didn't mention this, but there are some cities that are returning their home key money. Um, and that really shows that homelessness is one of those issues that you can try to throw money at, but solutions are often so much more complicated than just spending millions of dollars. Right, because all of these decisions involve people, right? The neighbors, the cities, the different interest groups, the homeless folks themselves who want to have a say in what's going to happen and where they're going to go. And that makes it super complicated. Exactly. Well, another big budget item that's also really complicated, even if there is money, is education, which is what we're going to talk about next. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to California State of Mind. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. It has been months since most California kids have set foot in their schools. It has definitely been a long time. They are learning at home on computers, or maybe many of them are still doing paper packets if they're not connected to the Internet. 
A lot of kids are falling behind, according to their teachers and their parents, and the state doesn't really have any answers for them on how they're going to get them safely back on campus. Well, this is weird right now because most people are not expecting schools to reopen in the middle of this surge, but people do want to know what the plan is to get there. Ricardo Cano with Cal Matters has been reporting on this, so he joined me to talk about these challenges and some new pressure to get kids back into the classroom. Hi, Ricardo. How are you doing, Nicole? Um, so you profiled a high school in South L.A. called the Communication and Technology School, and the student body at this school is mostly low-income Latino students. About a quarter of these teens are, are learning English. Tell us about some of the students you met and what they're going through right now. Sure. So right now, um, uh, there had been several classes at this school in South L.A. that had 70 percent or more of their students failing. I was able to follow uh, one of the academic counselors at the school, Antonio Roque, uh, who, you know, has been doing home visits for students who've just been missing since the start of the school year and unaccounted for. Uh, students like Kevin, who came here from Honduras uh, with third grade education, who is already behind and uh, has just not been logging in. Uh, students like Julian, who have been trying and trying and trying to uh, connect to their Zoom classes, but uh, just can't seem to get through because they don't have stable internet connection. This is a story that uh, is is happening in cities like uh, Oakland and Sacramento and Fresno. It's not just exclusive to the school or, or South LA. Um, what we're seeing this semester is a high proportion of students failing courses uh, across school systems uh, in California. Well, in California has such a large wealth gap, and we've heard about this digital divide. It's still a huge issue. And your story really shows that it wasn't enough for schools to just pass out laptops and Wi-Fi hotspots and call it good. Like, students are really still struggling to connect. Um, do these students need more technology support, or do they really just want to go back to the classroom? The parents and the students that I spoke with uh, in that school said that online learning isn't working for them or their kids. And, you know, they, they want to be back in school. Um, that's, their, that's their hope. And, and that's what really what, what they want to see happen. Um, speaking with the educators at that school, you know, uh, with, with uh, Mr. Roque, the counselor, um, obviously, uh, not required to go do these home visits, um, but doing them because he understands that there are students who, who are really in need of help right now, but just sort of hesitant in terms of what that would look like. You know, I, I was able to tour that school. And uh, during that tour, um, Mr. Roque told me, you know, he, he was doubtful that, that in person would be able to work. You know, his belief being that if schools were to reopen, um, uh, that they would close within a matter of weeks. Well, there is a renewed push to reopen schools when this surge does go away. Um, a powerful Democratic assemblyman, Phil Ting, introduced a bill this week that would require schools to reopen in counties that are in the red, orange, or yellow tiers. Um, first of all, why have officials in California been so reluctant to reopen schools? And is it hitting a breaking point now after nine months? 
when the legislature and the governor uh, passed the budget this summer, um, it did include some pretty strong language. The, the inference is that, that schools, uh, you know, the default this year was going to be that schools were going to try and do everything in their power to offer in-person instruction. And I think what we're seeing right now, at least from the lawmakers who are introducing uh, Assembly Bill 10 um, that you mentioned, is that they look at what happened this semester and the fact that um, many schools, you know, in the particular in the Bay Area, where uh, counties moved up to the orange tier at one point, where there was this opportunity to offer in-person learning, you know, most schools did not really make that transition. And so uh, in response to the fact that most, most schools in the state have, have stayed remote, you know, they're trying to push forward this uh, bill that essentially would nudge schools and tell them pretty prescriptively when they should be reopening physically for students and teachers. Teachers unions have been pretty vocal about staying in distance learning um, during the pandemic. And it sounds like staff like Mr. Roca have um, concerns as well. Do you expect much pushback from educators on this bill? A spokesperson from the California Teachers Association characterized uh, the bill that was introduced this week as a starting point. It's unclear at this point what sort of organized pushback uh, we should expect to see with this legislation. A lot of these lawmakers have the support of labor, but they're also parents and they're living the realities as well uh, of having their kids um, be in remote learning. Um, there's certainly going to be discussions about the finer aspects of the bill. The, the legislators I spoke with are expecting that, but uh, I think what we're seeing now is parents as a ground level and, and folks who are asking the question of, you know, why schools have been closed while restaurants and bars have been allowed to stay open. Well, Ricardo Cano, thank you so much for joining us this week. Sure. Happy to do it. Elizabeth, I can't imagine how difficult remote learning is, especially for families that have multiple kids and maybe they're in a small apartment where kids are in the same room on different computers at the same time, or maybe just not having a great internet connection. It is really tough. There are a lot of parents, especially moms, who have opted to leave the workforce. They're focusing on helping their kids with school and making sure they're getting on. If they weren't there, the kids might be trying to do it alone or having a lot of challenges. But leaving the workforce also means you're putting a strain on your family, and that leads to many more challenges. Yeah, it really is a double whammy for a lot of families. And I just want to take a second to acknowledge that parents... We see you. We know this is hard and you're doing your best. Hang in there. And if you want to talk to us and tell us a little bit about what it's been like for your family, you can tweet us at Your Golden State. That's right. We really want to hear your stories. This is something we are all experiencing together, but yet so far apart. So thank you for joining us this week on California State of Mind. We'll be back next week. See you then. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. 
Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. We'll be right back.